What up? Welcome back to the Dealer Talk Podcast, Season 3, Episode 2. This is your host, Herb Anderson, and thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we're going to be looking at fixed operations from multiple angles. The guest that we have on today is somebody that I follow for a really long time. I got to say, I'm kind of starstruck on this one. Um, You know, when I put this project together, I envisioned myself interviewing certain people in the industry, being able to um, ask them questions and get some of their insights. And this dude was definitely on that list. So to actually have him on the show is kind of insane. Um, make sure that you're ready. Make sure that you have a pen and paper because you're going to want to take some notes. Lots of insights on this one. So just be ready. If you haven't done so, please, please make sure to share this podcast, share this episode with somebody that can benefit from the information so that they can take it back to the dealership and implement it in their day to day. All right. So let's get into it. Without further ado, let's check it out. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Dealer Talk Podcast. Uh, This is your host, Herb Anderson, riding solo today. Eric is doing his civic duty, so he's not able to join us. So I just want to give him a quick shout out. Um, Sorry you missed this episode, man. Um, Yeah, so today's going to be an interesting one for me. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to try to keep it as... (laughs) as cool as possible. But the guest that I have on today, I'm a big, huge fan of. I've been following his content, read his books, listened to his podcasts. Um, And so I'm just, (laughs) I'm super stoked that he's doing the show. Um, So yeah. (laughs) All right. So without further ado, let's just get into it. I want to get this guy on the mic. Um, The guest we have for today is Chris, the Bulldog Collins. Chris, what's up, man? How are you, dude? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you for having me. This is going to be fun. Yeah, dude. Super excited that you're on. Thank you so much for, for joining us for um, you know for a session. I really, really appreciate it. And like I said... Uh, what's going on with Eric? Why is Eric not hanging out with us? He's uh, He had court today, so he had to go for jury duty. Um, and- GWI or uh, spousal abuse or what? What is he in trouble for? I don't know. He, he hasn't he hasn't shared anything yet, so um, I gotta have. You're going to jail, Eric. <laughs> You're going to jail. <laughs> so I have to have a follow up conversation with him about that. But uh, yeah, dude, like I said, a big I'm a huge huge fan of all your stuff. I really appreciate you you being on here and just kind of want to get into it. Um, the first question I ask everybody that comes on the show is if you could just give us a little bit of a recap. I know you know you're you know. Uh, people know who you are, but for anybody that's maybe tuning in or joining the industry and listening to the show, if you could give us just a, a quick uh, recap, that'd be great, man. Yeah. So um, I started off in, in our industry literally as a porter to buy drum sticks. Like, so I worked from 12 to five at a Volkswagen Audi Subaru dealership in, in Seattle. And it was literally just to pay for drum sticks and cymbals. And then, you know, my grandfather, who was kind of my father raised me to always, you know, give more than what somebody pays you. Like you'd always say, if somebody pays you $5 an hour, give them 10. And so I was on time. I worked hard when I was there and I ended up getting promoted. I became the head of the, what we called ourselves the lot lizards and, you know, detail. And then eventually worked my way up to be a service advisor. 
and I was um, I was quickly one of the top service advisors there out of out of eight. And a consulting company came in to kind of fix our department at one point. I remember they changed my pay plan, um, which I was scared of at first, but I ended up making more money actually on the new pay plan. But one of the consultants, after you know, after they were there for a while, asked me if I would go talk to a group of advisors at a Ford dealership in North Seattle that he was having a hard time with. And I was like, sure. And so I kind of thought he wanted me to like teach him some stuff. Right. And I, I think I'm like 20 at the time. And um, so I just started paying attention to like what I did different than the other advisors. Like when I would walk up to a car, they would say like, do you have an appointment? I would walk up and I was just, I was curious about people and I didn't really know anything about cars. So I would ask them like, where are you headed today? What do you do for work? Like I would connect with them on a deeper level, which later became a story that I'm kind of famous for called Pet the Dog, which is, you know, it's about connecting on a deeper level. But I created this advisor training. I remember I showed up with these little workbooks because I was the one in our band who made the flyers. So I knew how to use the word processor at Kinko's because you know I'm pretty I'm pretty old here, heard. So um, this is before you had you know computers and and word processors and all that. But I made like I think it was probably eight eight pages of a workbook, and I showed up with you know workbooks for everybody. And the consultant was like, "What what are you doing?" And I'm like, "Well, I create you know I came up with some stuff for them." And he's like, "No, I just wanted you to tell them to do whatever I said." And then I know, you know, and then it worked for you. And I'm like, you haven't taught me anything. <laughs> like, and that was the beginning of my hatred for consultants. <laughs> Cause like, you know, I'm like, well, no, I'm doing all the work. Like, what have you taught me? Like you just came in and changed my pay plan and like move stuff around. Um, and so, you know, very early on, I understood the difference between a consultant and somebody who really works in our industry, right? And so I, I try really hard not to be a consultant and, you know, to come at it from, from our point of view in, you know, in the store, in the drive, that sort of thing. So then they ended up paying because it went so well with those advisors because I ended up doing, you know, I think I went like an hour and a half. They ended up paying me to go around and do training. And so I was going all, all over Oregon and Washington doing advisor training. I eventually started working for them. And they taught me – one of the things they taught me was how to read financial statements, which um, it's interesting, man, because I'm a – you know, I didn't finish high school and I've – you know, people like – many times have asked me like, did you go to Stanford or Harvard? Because I know financial so well, but, um, you know, I, I just, I was self-taught and they, you know, that consulting company taught me how to read financials. And then I took a deep interest in it. And then I ended up being one of their consultants. It would go into service departments and I did this for them. And then I did it for myself for almost 10 years where I would go into service departments a hundred percent on commission and I would turn them around and I would get a piece of the increase. And so I, I developed this crazy toolbox where I had no excuses because, you know, if I go into a service department and I say, well, it won't work here because of the market or the brand, I wasn't going to make any money. Like I didn't I couldn't have an excuse. And so I created these systems and formulas that just worked. And then over time, like I, I got burnt out because I was on the road so much. Like there were literally months where I was only home two or three days. I decided, you know what? I need to write a book and help more people. And so the first book I write, wrote, it took me two years, The Irreplaceable Service Manager. And I got a ghostwriter at first because that's what somebody told me to do. And that didn't work because they didn't understand our industry. And so I ended up writing it myself. 
and it, it was painful, but you know, when I put it out, I was helping more people. And so then I wrote my, the, the book, the millionaire service advisor, and I started coaching groups. And so the coaching groups allowed me to coach managers from afar, but not have to travel so much. And so now that's kind of the heart and soul of our company. The, you know, the biggest part of our revenue is coaching. We have hundreds of, you know, uh, service departments, whether it be dealerships or independents in our coaching groups. And I have, you know, I have four coaches that work for me and that's, you know, that's kind of what we do. So we have, we have our business now is we have books, we have online, which we call on demand, which is service manager university. There's tech training in there, there's customer service, there's advisor training. And then the, the level up from there is coaching where you get a coach, you come to quarterly meetings with, you know, with myself and the coaches and we kind of help you, we help you through it. So Long, you know, long-winded story, but that's how I got started. Was as a porter to um, to you know pay for drumsticks, and I ended up figuring out that I could make more money as an advisor than you know than as a rock star, really. Because I, I would, you know, Seattle was kind of a happening time then, and I remember a lot of the bands that had record deals were making less than me, and they were on MTV. And that was, I was like, wow, like in the, in the car business, just the harder I work, like the more I make and in music, it seemed like there was a lot of luck involved, you know, and who you knew and that sort of thing. And I left out a whole part about how I was a general manager of a dealership and I owned my own dealership. Um, that's all a part of the story too, but yeah, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, no, I totally relate to that because I, I was a, a tire tech and, and, and lube technician when I started and then I, w- I became a writer and I remember I wanted my path to be a technician because I liked the the bond and, and back in those days, it was a lot more fun. You know, I think HR kind of kind of has killed that <laughs> at the dealership, but um, I remember seeing those interactions and wanting to be a part of that. But, um, you know, the my, my, my mentor at that time... Um, you know, told me, Hey, just be a writer, try it for a month. If you don't like it, then we'll, we'll, we'll reevaluate. And I remember getting my first paycheck and this was like, you know, early 2000s, maybe 2000, 2001. It was like four grand or something like that. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, so when you switched to, um, to writer, cause you know, I've over the years, I've had a lot of technicians switch to writer. And what I always tell them is like, Cause I don't know the success rate on that's maybe 25%. And I always tell them like, Hey, I'm, I'm okay with you trying this, but the thing that you have to promise me is if it doesn't work, you won't leave. Um, cause that's always the thing. Like, I don't want to lose a tech, but if a tech wants to be a writer and, and they can do it, it works. But for, so tell me from coming from a tech to a writer, like what were the, you know, what were the big eye opening things that were hard to kind of push through? See, for me, the, 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 the biggest thing was that I, I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed talking to people number one. So I think that as a, if you're in that role and you don't like people, then you're not going to survive. You're just not going to make it. You have to genuinely, you know, um, from within really like to like people and like to talk to people and get to know people. Um, and then I, I realized that I really enjoyed 
when customers would come to me with problems. And I know that sounds crazy, even masochistic, but I enjoyed that part because to me, I looked at it as an opportunity to wow that customer. I looked at it as an opportunity for me to make that customer a raving fan. And with that mindset, it just, um, I don't know, it just clicked. And it was really quick for me. Um, uh, you know, the hardest part for me was getting getting in line with the numbers and, and, and looking at that stuff. But the, the you know, kind of like the core of the role, which is, which is talking to people um, you know, and making sure that they have a good experience and all that, that was, that just came natural. Yeah. I think, don't you think that's an important quality? Like I, I was the same way. Like when you could tell, like when the other advisors were avoiding a customer, like I remember my first week being an advisor, there was this customer, the Subaru SVX. Do you know what that is? Um, I, I know Subaru, but not the, not the model that you're talking about. Yeah, it was a terrible car. It looked like a spaceship. And um, all these Boeing engineers bought them, and they were in an SVX club. There were like five of them. And it was a terrible car. Like it was terrible. I don't know. It was like it was Subaru's idea of a race car or something. But it looked like a, you know, I don't know, like a like a cross between an old Lambo and a, and a Subaru. And the guy came in and every nobody would help him. Nobody would help him. And so I helped him. And I remember it was like a 22-line or something warranty RO. And I remember the dispatcher threw it back to me and said, you need to get diagnosis. And I mean, the car was only like a year old, but it was a lot of rattles and things like that. And um, yeah, like the, those customers and nobody would help or that were difficult ended up being like the best customers. Like they ended up being my friends because – you know, they, they, um, I don't know. I always kind of saw it from their point of view. Like I was like, if I was them, I would feel the same way, you know? And so, yeah, I don't know. I think that's an important characteristic in a good advisor is to not cherry pick and help the people that nobody else wants to help. Oh yeah, for sure, man. So, um, you know, one of the things that I did once I once I became a manager because it's so hard, right? People, you know, especially when you're interviewing for that process, and I got burned on it so many times. Where I get somebody on a one to one, and we'd have a good conversation. I'd be like, "Oh, this person is great. You know, they had the service background. Maybe they worked at a restaurant or something like that. Um, so they they on paper." And, and on that one-to-one interaction, they look like they would, they would, you know, they fit the part. And then you get them on the floor and they just fall apart. They can't handle people. They can't handle objections. Um, and so what I, what I graduated to doing or I started doing was interviewing in groups. And that was really successful for me because you could tell those people apart when they're in this environment that they, that, that there's other people around them. You know what I mean? Instead of just being on that one-to-one, um, you know, sort of an interview. And then you, they, they kind of weave themselves out automatically because you can tell them they're shy. They're sitting down by themselves in a corner somewhere. Um, you know what I mean? And they, they only like spark up if you address them. So yeah, totally. Yeah. But okay, man. So I wanted to ask you, um, I wanted to kind of start with a 50,000 view, right? Um, and, and one of the reasons why I want to do that is because I consider you to be uh, a pioneer when it comes to social media and um, podcasts, even 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 the books, right? And creating all these these uh, you know, putting your your information out there in platforms to kind of scale uh, to reach more people. I think you and Michael Cirillo from the Dealer Playbook are some of the first ones um, to do it in a really big way. And so I'm just curious, man. Like um, in the beginning, when you started to do this, I mean, did you always think about oh, service is the way I'm going to go? Why that p- part in particular? And 
have your goals for that evolved or changed? I'm sure that they, they, they must have, there must be some sort of an evolution at this point than when you first started and said, Hey, I'm going to do this to maybe reach more people. Like you said earlier. Um, yeah. So how do I, well, you're asking a lot though. Um, well, uh, maybe a condensed, a condensed version is I, what I want to highlight is the importance of, of the social media platforms that we have today and how how dealers can utilize them kind of like you did for your business, but maybe for the on the dealership side. OK, yeah. So I don't you know, the thing is, like for us, a lot of a lot of service managers and advisors aren't really looking for that on social media. Right. So maybe YouTube is probably the best thing. Like I saw, bro, I saw last night. Um, I was watching YouTube and one of, for some reason, YouTube served up one of my videos, which is the worst thing for me because the thing I hate most is watching myself. But I noticed one of my videos had 90,000 views. Like I didn't know that. Like it was one, it was like the tips on five tips for advisors or something like that. Five keys to being an advisor, something, five, something, 90,000 views. So I think like for us marketing to the automotive industry, um, they're not really on social media except for maybe YouTube and a little bit of Facebook, but you're not going to find them on Instagram really. Right. I don't, I don't think. And so podcast ends up being, I don't know how your downloads are for this podcast, but our downloads for service drive revolution are huge. Like they, I've, I've been told that we're number one in the industry for downloads and people are like, you should be selling advertising and you know, all that because of the amount of downloads we get. In fact, we have somebody who helps us with the podcast. It does them for big, you know, big guys that chart and service drive revolutions charted in the top 200 on iTunes a bunch of times, which is crazy. Right. So I think podcasts, because they're driving to work, I think. And also I think podcasts feed to a longer tail conversation. Like we live in a society where everything has to be a dog bark and condensed into a tight little, you know, synopsis, but our industry is complicated and I don't know that you can talk about things that you want to talk about in, in dog barks and that quick. So I'm finding right now that books, we sell a ton of books and I'm actually, I'm actually going to put my books back up on Amazon. I took them off of Amazon for a long time, but I'm putting them back up and um, the podcast ended up being, you know, the best for me. What are, what are you seeing? Do you do good on Instagram and Facebook and all that? Yeah, so we're, we're there. I mean, obviously, we, we've, we've been doing this for a year, but it, it, yeah, man, it's grown significantly from where we started to where we are today. And, and it, yeah, it's crazy how, um, how sudden it, it, it happens. You know what I mean? Like, I remember the, you know, maybe the first six months we would get maybe 20 or 30 downloads. You know what I mean? And now, you know, we're up to, 250 300 per episode you know oh so yeah man it's been it's been it's been really crazy and we take a break so we do 15 episodes and then we're off we're off for a couple of months yeah. you know what i mean yeah. so um because i i don't i don't have intentions of becoming a podcaster like that's not really i really love what i do as far as working with the dealerships and being in the dealerships and and, and you know working with them directly the only reason why why I, I i thought about doing the podcast was one it was a selfish 
a project for me because I would bring people on and, and, and learn from their experiences. And it was a way to connect with some really cool people. And, and all the stuff that I learned doing this, I take with me on, on the road when I, when I go see dealers. So that's reason number one. And number two, it's, it's an opportunity for me to scale, right? To, to maybe reach more people than, than I normally would just by, uh, you know, being on LinkedIn and things like that. And, you know, you can't be in all places at all times. So, um, plus I was having really good conversations, Chris, with people behind closed doors. And I thought to myself, like, man, you know, there's, and and it just kept happening dealership after dealership. You know, these are very intelligent people, very smart people. I wish that there was a way for me to put these out there for everybody to listen to. And so it kind of was the, yeah, no, I agree. I agree with that. Like that's, I don't know. I get as much out of it just having the conversations, right? I'm sure you feel the same way. So why don't, um, well, yeah, I guess if that's not your ambition, I was going to say the, the one thing I think that helps us is that we're a video too. So we film it and put up the videos also on YouTube. And I think, um, I think we're starting to put the videos up on iTunes. So the videos help because a lot of people, a lot of people watch videos just on their phone, which is crazy to me, but they do it. Um, okay. So now let's flip that question because you, you asked me about us and then you asked me about dealers. So I think that dealers and service centers do a terrible job of social media because like take, take for example, a car dealership, like they, they, they kill their list by putting up, you know, they think that social media and what they're selling is a car. And I, I don't know if you read the Forbes article that came out a couple days ago, but the average new car dealer loses $750 for every new car they sell. And so anybody can sell the car cheaper, right? The thing that, that dealers need to do is tell stories. They need to get back to being a part of their community and telling stories. They don't tell stories. They just talk about features and benefits on the cars. They don't connect in a deeper way with their community whatsoever. And that's where they're missing social media. So they spend all this money on social media. But at the end of the day, they're just losing more money. There's nothing special about what they're selling. I always say that in the service drive too, like you got to understand that the car is a commodity, right? Like anybody can service the car. The difference between us and everybody else is the connection we have with the customers, the relationship that we have with them. And so I don't know anybody in, in auto that's doing, doing social media the right way. You got to go. Is your wife texting you that you're late for something? <laughs> <laughs> no man that's <laughs> what's that's going just, on is Eric texting you that he needs you to bail him out he needs to be bailed out <laughs> what did they set bail out a million dollars what did they set it for that's uh, funny no man that's uh, <laughs> you're not gonna see eric for five years yeah i'm just i'm you know i'm learning man i'm, I'm getting <laughs> he can get out on good behavior tell him uh, yeah. So does that make sense about social media and auto? They they think it's all about the price of an oil change. And there's always somebody who can do it cheaper. You have to tell stories. You have to get personal. You, you have to, um, you know, the one of the top shows on TV is the Kardashians and it's about nothing. It's about drama and stories. Right. And so that's the thing is getting better at telling stories. Do you think, for example, like I've always thought, and I don't know, maybe there is, man, I haven't looked at all the podcasts that are out there, but do you think that a dealership could leverage podcasts um, to get their message out there? Like do a, a 
in the dealership type of a podcast and talk about, um, you know, this, uh, uh, service and how to, how to, you know, tips on how to service your vehicle and uh, tips on how to negotiate a better deal and things of that nature. I mean, do you foresee uh, somebody maybe um, doing that, doing it successfully and, and leveraging that, those, that, that type of a platform? No, I think that YouTube and, and Facebook and Instagram are where they probably belong. Cause think about podcasts are two things are either entertainment or education. So I listen to them for education, right? Um, but you're a dealer, uh, you know, I don't know. Consumers aren't looking for a podcast that educates them on a car. They want to pay us to do that and they want to trust us. And so there'll be a couple weirdos out there that read every blog and all that, but that's 10% of the people that want to know everything about everything. So I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? I've always thought that maybe there's something there, but you know, when, when you put it in the context that you did, I mean, I think that that, it makes sense, right? Um, Definitely platforms like Facebook and, 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 uh, you know, Instagram, uh, you know, it's one of the things that I work with dealers on is creating uh, promos for that. And man, I got to tell you, it's it's super effective, and it's cheap for the for the stores, right? So, um, yeah, like I had a, I had a client. Um, like I think about this all the time when I'm in dealerships because there's so many characters in dealerships, right? Like I had a client. He owns a a big dealership, and I won't say his name, but he has it in his will. So he has two things in his will for his kids. One is if they get a tattoo, they're out of the will. And the other one is that they have to have a prenup that gives nothing to their spouse. Because he's gonna they're gonna inherit a, a you know a truckload of money, right? And like I just think like stuff like that, like if there was a dealer on YouTube talking about how his daughter's dating this guy and he doesn't like him and he won't get a job. Like that would be more endearing than telling me how much the new Corvette cost. Like if you segued into the Corvette or he was in the Corvette telling that story, it's a way more entertaining viral thing that, you know, and I think too, like that, actually that, that I just thought of something that, that is a really important point here is that, you know, our industry hasn't, hasn't been the most honest industry but the things that go viral on the internet are the things that are the most honest and so it's like you in order to do good on social media and really get a following you need to let people in the kitchen you need to be vulnerable where we try to we try to pretend like everything is something in the automotive industry and we don't we're not vulnerable and we don't show people the you know what really happens in the kitchen and what's going on and I'm telling you, if somebody came out and did that, they would be bigger than you can ever imagine. In fact, I've been offered that TV show a couple times um, to do it. It's um, yeah that that would that would go. People would be endeared to that to a dad that you know. Think about the demographic of guys buying Corvettes, and then how they would relate to a dad who's daughter is dating a guy he doesn't like and talking about his will and tattoos and like, you know, older guys aren't fans of all the tattoos and piercings and everything that younger kids get. Like it just, you know, it plays into it and kids understand that it's not going to, kids aren't going to want, they aren't going to not buy a car there because of that. Cause their parents are that way. Right. So that's the thing is being vulnerable and honest and showing people what's really going on. Yeah, I totally agree with that, man. Definitely being willing to put yourself out there. I think that 
you you would sell more cars by talking about the trades that you lost money on. Yeah, <laughs> and being vulnerable because sure. <laughs> people would be like, "Oh, they're human." Yeah, and and they and they take losses too. <laughs> right, like it's 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 an art form. It's not science for sure, man. So, um, I, you know, I definitely want to take advantage of of you being on the show to get really granular on service, right? Because I think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of knowledge there, and, and you know, for anybody listening in, any decision makers, I want to make sure that we cover a couple things. So, um, first question I have here is, how do you see, or what do you think about the service uh, the service role, how it's going to play um, at at the dealership level now? Like I've always thought about it as a long term success strategy of the dealership, right? And I think that there's a lot of missed opportunities because we don't connect that to the front of the house. Uh, but do you think as, as technology advances and we get more towards ride share and ownership uh, uh, subscriptions and things of that nature, uh, do you foresee service becoming more and more important? Has it always been uh, you know, a big part of the business that's maybe been neglected? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? And, and you know, maybe uh, some of the things that decision makers can start prepping for um, as, you know, as technology and things of, of that nature advance. Yeah. So you, you have a weird thing in, in, in our industry that most dealers measure their ego or, you know, how high they piss on the tree by how many cars they sell. So if I walk into, you know, if I go down to the bar here for lunch and I'm sitting at the bar and any car dealer that's a friend of mine walks in and says, you know, Hey, Chris, how are you doing? And I say, how much did you do in, how many ROs did you write yesterday? Or how much did you do in service gross? They would just, their eyes would gloss over. But if I said, how many cars did you sell yesterday? Their posture would change and they would tell me, you know, and then they would go into how the market sucks and, you know, nothing works or whatever. So the, we, we have a couple problems. One is they've been saying for a long time that, that car sales are going to drop. And so, you know, the, our industry is like, okay, so car sales are going to drop. That's happened before. But what they don't say is that Tesla is going to come in and steal market share, that all these other electric companies, you know, Dyson's making a car. Apple will decide here pretty quick if they're going to make a car. But, you know, half a million cars here, half a million cars there on a pool that is already shrinking is devastating. And now Tesla has an unfair advantage because they go direct to consumer. And I spoke at NADA years ago and I had a thing about Tesla in there and they made me take it out. And I was like, why do I have to take it out? And they said, because it's not a popular topic with the dealer body. And I'm like, yeah, but it's the elephant in the room. And they're like, no, we don't want to upset manufacturers. But the thing is, and I've been in meetings with manufacturers is what they want to do is have the same advantage as Tesla and go direct to consumer. So now that's the climate that we're in, right? Manufacturers have, there's no front end gross for car dealers. They're giving the cars away at a loss. Car dealers are stuck on the hook. If you really dig into it, like what what made Ford so so strong and to scale so quickly in the beginning was Henry Ford came up with the concept of flooring cars, right? So he's like, I would get paid quicker for the cars if when I delivered them, I got paid. So what I want you to do is become, is to get a line of flooring and then you can floor your cars on this line of credit or with your own money, but you're going to pay me when I deliver them, but you're going to have service and parts and you'll be able to cover all of your expenses with service and parts, which was fixed absorption. So that's when that concept 
was created, right? Was by Henry Ford that if he used to have this chart where he'd show what it would cost to build a Model A Ford from scratch through parts and service. And it was like, you know, $70,000 when the car was 3,500 or whatever. So that was the idea. But now you have dealers that are flooring cars. There's no money in the cars. They have this flooring expense. So they're paying for this line of credit and for a depreciating asset that there isn't a lot of value in, right? So I think we will come to some sort of hybrid where the manufacturers are going to go direct to consumers and the dealers can deliver the cars and maybe get a delivery fee and service will be the bread and butter. So then you have the question, will will dealers want to have a service and parts department? And that'll create more consolidation in our industry, but there will be dealers that will, will be very happy running service departments and performing warranty, you know, that way. But that's, that's where the future is headed is it is going to be in service. We're busier than we've ever been in, in our business because dealers are going, Hey, I can't, you know, I speak all the time to 20 groups and most of the time, half of the room is losing money in fixed stops, which is crazy. And, you know, you should be, you should have high fixed absorption. And anybody listening, if you don't know what fixed absorption is, that's, you know, where this, where service parts and a body shop, if you have it, covers the expenses for the dealership. So if you had to give a car away at cost, you would be okay and you would still be profitable. That was the basic concept of a car dealership in the very, very beginning. And so, yeah, it's going to change. Service is going to be the most important department. And I think you'll have more of a dealership 360 where customers aren't getting passed around. You'll, you'll have, you know, there's different systems that will be in place where customers can kind of get everything from an advisor. You know, when I was an advisor, I sold a lot of cars and I remember I was selling so many cars that they made me stop because the salespeople were going to quit over it. But I would literally go down on weekends. And if I had a customer, you know, I remember the general manager, um, Miles was his name, came to me and he said, you know, why don't you, why are you sending cars to me anymore? Because, you know, they would sell a lot of cars off of me. And I'd say, because this is what happens when I turn a car over to one of your buffoon salespeople. Hey, I lose the work and service. And I lose the car sale because they go somewhere else and I just lost a customer. And so let me sell the car and I'll keep the customer. You'll get the car deal and I'll get them back in service because I don't know. Even then I thought long term, like I thought like this is my customer base. They're my customers. That's how I thought. And so, um, you know, and then I sell, I think I sold three cars in a month. And then they were like, no, you can't do that anymore because their top salesperson maybe had eight cars the month before or whatever. So I, I was convinced I could be salesman of the month. So, you know, and I've had clients like uh, Galp and Ford, they have salespeople in the drive that sell 20 plus cars a month. And so sales is going to, is going to move more towards the service department. And it's going to be more about experiences and relationships than it is order taking in, in the end. But the question is, and you know, I don't know if you agree, but the question is, will the dealer, each individual dealer want to be a service guy? Because <laughs> they, they measure their ego off of, um, off of car sales. 
Yeah, no, I definitely want to want to explore that. But you said something that, um, you know, you talked about fixed absorption and I kind of have a, a revolving theory on that. And and I wanted to get your take on that before bringing this, uh, you know, kind of uh, talking a little bit more about the, the that that last question you're posing. But so uh, fixed absorption, t- totally agree. But I also think that we need to look at units in operation as a measure. Right. So um, it's not so much uh, what the what the dealership, what the service department produces, but what it does it produce in relationship to how many units are out there that were sold by the dealer that are brand owners. And the reason I say that is because one of the things that I see constantly is I see a lot of brand owners in the backyard of a specific dealership that have never serviced a car at that store. Right. So they've never, they bought the car there, but then that's it. They, they never went in there. And even brands like Toyota that have uh, a, uh, um, you know, a two year free maintenance plan, um, or, 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 you know, like oil, you know, basic maintenance plan, um, you know, the, the consumer never goes back to the dealership. And so, I mean, do you think that, that, I mean, obviously absorption is, is critically important. Like you said, I mean, it's, it's a good way to measure it, but what about, what about units in operation? How does that, how do you think that plays a role? And most importantly, what should dealers be looking at? Yeah, that's, that's a great, that's a great question. And so there's kind of, there's kind of two parts to that is what's the most expensive customer for you to get? The one that you have already or the one that's in your market that you don't have? The one that you have already, right? It's it's cheaper to keep the customers that you have than it is to go and acquire new ones. Okay, so we're saying the same thing, but the question I asked was, what's the most expensive one to get? So the most expensive one to get is the one you don't have. Right. Exactly. Yes. And so there's a, you know, it's proven and I've proven it over and over again. Like a lot of manufacturers, Nissan was the first one to do it, but a lot of manufacturers have gone to retention uh, as a measurement of CSI. So they'll have a blend. But one thing early on with Nissan, and it's a ton of money that they give back to the, to the service department is, you know, your retention. And so we went to work on it and we, we knew the stats that if you give them a couple free oil changes, They'll come and if you make the appointment for them, they'll, you know, you have a better chance and all that. And so, you know, that those bonuses are easy to hit if you have those systems in place. And it's basically give them the oil changes for free. You can pack it into the cost of the new car or service can eat it. But you're, um, you know, you're going to get them back. If they come in twice, they're more likely to, to stay with you. So one doesn't work as well as two free oil changes. And then you know, having a list every month of the cars that we sold seven months ago that are due for an oil change, calling them and getting them in because people are busy. They know they need an oil change. They procrastinate and they just go somewhere else. And so you want to tell them, okay, you got a free one here. How can we get you in? So that's a part of it. And that, you know, is proven to, to work. And then, you know, I have dealer groups that do free oil changes and when I go into those dealer groups, most of the time the service manager like, oh, these free oil changes are killing me. And I'm like, you're looking at it wrong. Like you guys are geniuses to do it because you have high retention and people are coming in. You're just not converting them. So your systems don't convert. But then, now let's go back to the beginning is how can you afford to get the clients that you don't have that are going to cost you $100, $200 to get in? Because you're going to do direct mail, you're going to chase them, you're going to give them an offer. How can you afford to light a hundred or two hundred dollars on fire if you're not really profitable? You can't, and so you have to be profitable 
to compete in today's market. You can't be a business that's not profitable and be aggressive in the market to get customers. And so what it comes down to in the end and a lot of what our service manager university is about is what do you make in profit for every hour you sell? And so that's the key. Like you got to keep your expenses low. You have to have an effective labor rate and a work mix that creates a profit because if you're not profitable, you can't be competitive in the market. And I, I always say like in a service department that, that I've fixed or with managers that I mentored, like if we lit $50 on fire and we gave it to Tommy, our advisor, we know that Tommy's going to convert 50 of those into customers that are going to stay here. And so it's about petting the dog. It's about connecting with them, but you have to have the profit before you can afford to get them in. So profit comes first and then market share and units and operation comes second. But if you don't have the basic foundation, you will you will chase the market share into bankruptcy. Dude, I love that you're saying that. That's that's key, man. I can't tell you how many times I do a discovery meeting with a potential client and I find out that they're spending all this money on marketing to get people in their in their in their drive and it costs them money to have that person there. It's actually costing them money. And it's like, guys, why are we doing this? Like, you know, like you got to fix your processes. You got to fix, you got to fix your operation internally before you do that. Otherwise you're just spending money to lose money. It just doesn't make sense. Um, so man, that's, that's so great that you touched on that. Yeah. Like I, I talked to a, a dealer yesterday, so I did like a financial analysis for them. And, um, so their effective labor rate was somewhere around $75. They're losing $20,000 a month or whatever. I took the, the, uh, their effective labor rate and I divided it into their total sales. And I came up with, um, you know, the effective labor rate of 75. And then I added their loss into their gross and then divided it by how many hours I'd calculated they'd done. And their break even was $92. So they're selling an hour of labor for 75 and their break even is 92 and they're chasing more. I've literally, I've had it so many times in Toyota stores where the more customers they write, the more money they lose because they don't have a basic understanding of pricing strategies and, and you know, how to, how to sell the work that has the higher effective labor rate. They just, their systems don't support it. And it's not, you know, it's not service managers fault. Like, the, our industry has failed the service managers in the in the aspect that they get less training than somebody running a Seven Eleven. And you think about you got pricing strategies, you got leadership, you you have you know you're in a, in the retail business, you're touching more customers than any other department, and the service managers never trained, you know, never taught anything and. Most of the the training is tribal knowledge that's handed down from the buffoon they worked for before. And it's like, oh, well, we do it that way because that's how we've always done it while we're losing money. And, it, it, you know, it's just a definition of insanity. But our industry lets, you know, lets them down. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm getting more and more dealers calling and saying, hey, train my guy. Like the one thing, too, that happens all the time is a dealer will call us and be like, I need help. My service department's losing money, but I, I want to get a new manager. And I'm always like, send me the manager you have. I bet you I can train. Like knowledge is power. Once they start to understand how how to price things, how to create an outcome, how you know how profitability works and how to read the financial, most service managers are unstoppable. It's the thing is, is they're like the dog that just keeps getting kicked. 
Like you're not sharing the numbers with them. Dealers say like, oh, just get me more gross. Just get me more gross. But unless they know what their expenses are and they understand the financial, they'll spend their way into more gross. So they'll chase customers at a loss. They'll spend money on marketing and they're not making any money in the end. And their expenses go up and their gross goes up a little bit. But the last few 20 groups that I've spoken to in the composites, their gross for the year is up 5% and their expenses are up 15 and so it does, you know, knowledge is power. Unless you're training and investing in your service manager and your advisors, I don't know how you would expect a different outcome. It's nuts. Our industry has failed service managers on a catastrophic scale that they don't have, you know, they don't have a university they can go to. And, you know, I don't know, NADA, I, I have a client that's going to the NADA Academy. And that stuff's from 20 years ago. Our industry is changing so fast. I forget her name, but the CEO of GM just in an interview said that the industry's changed more in the last year than it's changed in the history of the industry. Like it's changing. And to, you know, to be training, I got a book that Ford wrote in the 30s, I think, that tells you how to do a walk around and how to dispatch work and all that. Like it's exactly the same as what mo- you know what most dealerships are doing in their service department. And you think like in sixty years, like the systems haven't changed. It's crazy. See now, I'm being, yeah. you're getting me. You're getting me started. <laughs> I'm, I'm yelling, <laughs> but I'm passionate about this. It drives me crazy because there's so many good people in our industry and they don't get trained. And they're held accountable for a result that they don't know how to get. I mean, they get more coaching in junior high football. Um, I totally get. I agree with you on that, man, for sure. And that actually brings into the question that that we talked about earlier, like of the future of the industry and where we left off. And I kind of wanted to bring that back. I know we're we're getting to the end here, so I, I want to make sure that we cover this. And then I have one more question to ask you, and then we'll we'll wrap it up. But so. Um, you know, you've written three books. One of the book, one of your books, uh, one of the books that you wrote is one of my favorite books. It's called the the Millionaire Service Advisor. And I wish that when I was starting out, I had that sort of a resource. So for any decision makers out there, if you if you haven't checked this out, make sure to get that. I always promote that book with with my with my dealers and make sure that that they get it for their advisors. But. Um, you know, you pr- you talk about principles there, right? A lot of different things that you did uh, in the beginning that allowed you to become top dog, right? Uh, between 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 advisors. My question on that, and and kind of to tie it all back together, is: Do you think that we we don't? offer enough training for the service advisor or better yet, do we not look at the service advisor like a salesperson? Cause you said it, man, like they're the, they're the, the service advisor has a better relationship with the customer than the person that sold them the car. They see that person more often. They probably know the name of their pets, the name of their children. Um, that, that bond, that relationship is so much stronger. Are we missing out opportunities to become just a f- more effective overall by not tapping into that and not providing that training for the advisors and, and really look at them like a salesperson and not a, a customer service rep? Yeah. So I know, I know Jeff, Jeff Cowan and God bless him. He's a great guy, but he's gone around saying that service advisors are salespeople. And I don't, that just has never resonated with me because to me, service advisors are customer collectors. You know, if if you want to know what a salesperson is, go sell cars for a week. Start off the month, it's zero, and try to sell a car. 
you know, it's it's a hard, it's a way harder thing. In service, the customers come to us. Service advisors aren't doing anything to network or get customers, right? We open the doors, they come in and they, you know, they go out in the drive and they ride them up. And most of the stuff that customers need in service, they need, right? If customers decline brakes on their car, it's not because we weren't good salespeople. It's because they didn't trust or like us. Or most of the time, we didn't call them until it was three o'clock and they're already on their way to pick up the car. And we told them, heaven forbid, but we told them at the cashier, oh, uh, by the way, you need brakes. You know, I'll go into dealerships all the time and call on declines. And I'll ask a customer, like, hey, you were in here and you needed brakes. And the advisors will say it's price. And I've yet to get price on brakes. Most of the time it's, yeah, they told me when I got there. I was already there to pick it up and they told me I needed brakes. And so... Selling in service is easy. Customers don't pull the car. You know, when we pull the car up at the end of the day, we could have done, we could have replaced the transmission and the customer isn't like, hey, show me my new transmission, right? It's a, it's a sale that they need. We're selling preventative maintenance. And the number one reason why customers don't buy preventative maintenance is they weren't told or they didn't understand is number two. And so really it's about the systems. And so our advisor training is, is, half is effective without the systems that support the advisors. So the first thing is the advisors have to have a system that tees the customers up to them. The customers are greeted within three seconds of pulling in the drive. The customers are put at ease, that they stay with their car and we go out to the car and greet them. There's a lot of psychological things that that go into building trust, but just selling or having word tracks is never as effective as you know, connecting with them on a deeper level and making friends with them and having systems that support the customers. And, you know, also the other thing that we do to advisors, I see it all the time is how many advisors can write 25 a day and touch every customer. We want advisors to do a two hour call and over update the customers and over communicate. But how could you possibly do that if you're writing 25 a day? You can't. And so the system has to support them. And dealers watch the, the personnel count. They're like, well, you know, I, want, I only want three advisors. And it's like, you need five. Like advisors do really good when they write 12, not when they write 25. And then heaven forbid, you have a quick loop and you have your least talented advisors writing 40 a day. It, it just doesn't financially, it doesn't make any sense. And for the customer, it doesn't make any sense. So Long, another long way to answer to your question, but the systems have to support the advisors and then the advisors need to be trained. But I don't believe advisors are salespeople. I believe it's a trust sale and advisors are advisors. If you're checking history and you're advising them on what they need, they need it. They need breaks. They need to do maintenance on their car. If the brake fluid is bad, they need to replace it. It's most of the time it's that we're in such a hurry and we got the advisors writing 20 or 25, they don't have time to check history. And so it's just, a, it's an afterthought most of the time. No, oh, yeah. I appreciate that perspective, man. Cause uh, you know, you make some good, some good points there. It's there. Yeah. I, I can't argue with that. It's. I know that I know the, the thing that advisors or salespeople is popular and I get, I get why it makes sense, but at the heart of it, I never thought of myself as a salesperson when I was an advisor, but maybe too, that's because I'm an introvert. I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little more introverted and I'm not that, you know, outgoing salesperson. Like, well, you know, with introverts, I take in knowledge and process it. And that's the fun for me. I don't always have like a quick response or, you know, I'm not always quick on my feet that way. 
I, I do appreciate the positive stuff about that book, but my my soul went into that book, The Millionaire Service Advisor. I love it, man. I've read it like four or five times. I, I really like. You know what? I really i want to I want to highlight this one because this one this one really caught. This was this is one that really oh it it just hit deep. Um, and you were talking about CSI, and you talked about how you set up CSI. So for any decision makers out there, I'm totally paraphrasing, but you know I I got you know you're here. So if I if I say it wrong, correct me. But you, you one of the things that you talked about there, and you said it makes no sense for us to tell the customer how we're graded when they're picking up the car right? Because now they're pissed if they had a bad experience and they're waiting for the survey to kill us on it. What you want to do is when that at the write-up, you want to tell the customer in advance, hey, Mr. Customer, just so that you know, today during, you know, during this process, the, the way that I'm going to get graded is via a, a, a survey that you're going to get. If at any point in time, I'm not meeting your expectations so that when you give that survey, you can give me a 10, please let me know. And I just love that, dude. I, man, like I said, I wish I would have had this book when I was writing service because to me, that, that, that in itself is, is, is worth buying the book and really implementing and understanding that concept. Yeah. Customers hate you. You know, it's like they come in, you kind of did an okay job. And then at the end, you're begging them for this survey and it's just It's super awkward. So yeah, we, you know, when I was, I, so I wrote for a Cadillac Oldsmobile dealership. And back then the surveys came in by paper, right? And so you would get like the, I don't know, it'd take 90 days to get one. And if you got a bad one, it killed you. And so we were really trying to fix our CSI and we needed a count. And so that's how we figured it out. And what we teach advisors today, we call it committing, but two things happen when you commit is one, the advisor feels like, or the customer feels like they're in control and the advisor has committed to something and they have to up their game. So it just kind of it would be like, hey, Herd, when we're all done here today, Honda's going to reach out to you and ask you about your experience. I'm committing to you that not, not only are you going to want to answer the survey, but you're going to give me a perfect score. If for any reason, Mr. Anderson, you're not comfortable with that, please let me know because I want to fix it. I want you to be my customer for a long time and I, I want to take care of you. And so, you know, now the customer's in control, right? Like you don't feel like you feel like, oh, okay, well, earn it from me. Cool. This is a mutual thing. And I'm I'm plugging in a little NLP there, right? Because I'm saying like not only are they gonna wanna answer the survey, because they don't want to answer the survey. Nobody does. Everybody hates answering surveys and they're over surveyed in our industry. So that NLP works too, but the idea is you got to get the count up. So committing, and then the rest of the day, like if you if you said that to every customer, you're going to call them in two hours. You're going to over deliver, and then you just remind them at the end, hey, don't forget, you're going to get that survey, and remember, you love me. Yeah, man, I love I love love that, man. I've told you know every single one of my accounts about that that process, and when I every time I recommend your book, and uh, you know I'm glad that we were able to get this on the air as well, so that whoever's listening in can can can, you know, take that, that nugget. Um, all right, man. So, uh, we are way, way over. I have one last question that I ask everybody that comes on the show. Uh, before we go, I really wanted to give you a minute to just talk about what it is that you do. I know you've got books, you got podcasts, you're all over the place, content creator, but more specifically, I want to, I want, I want to put, you know, shine the spotlight if we could on, on your, on your coaching and your training, because dude, I got to tell you, I, 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 
I don't have a dealership, but I signed up to the 99 uh, a month deal uh, just for myself, just because I really wanted to see what you had to offer. And I could recommend that. I've, I've had several of my clients, you know, sign up to your programs. I think that there's a lot of good stuff there. I can only imagine what, what one of those quarterly sessions or mastermind sessions with you and your team looks like. But um, is there a place, of, of, you know, where can people go to get some more information on this? Can you give like a 50,000 view on what you focus on and during those sessions and kind of like the value that they can get out of it. Yeah, no, and thank you. So um, the website is chriscollinsinc.com or you can just email info at chriscollinsinc. So it's chriscollinsinc.com. So info at, and um, so we're, you'll actually, maybe this will be a tool for you, but we're changing up our, our services here coming up. So we just had our annual top dog event and I announced that I'm giving away my, I bought a new Jeep uh, gladiator. Have you seen those? The truck? No, not yet. So I bought one, I paid cash for it and I'm going to give it away to the, you know, for the manager that takes our training and gets the best results. Half of the Half of the contest is your numbers. The other half is your journey, right? Did you get outside of your comfort zone? We're calling the contest you versus you. So what did you get? You know, what, what things did you do and get out of your comfort zone? Stop saying my, it won't work here. My market, my dealer, like you control things in your department. You control the advisors, the customer experience, the accountability, the systems. How can you change those to create a better, a better outcome? So um, now historically we've only done it for coaching clients, but I'm going to do it for on-demand clients and I'm going to move my on-demand. So right now we sell on-demand for 500 and that's the service manager university, the advisor training, the pet, the dog, customer service, the tech, we're adding BDC and telephone training here coming up. We're going to sell all that for 250 a month and you're going to qualify for the contest. So that's, um, that's something that's coming here pretty quick, which I'm excited about. But I want to, you know, I want to touch as many people and help our industry as much as I can. And that's kind of my way to, to do it. So we're going to sell right now. The thing you're buying is just advisor essentials. But in the other advisor training, there's, you know, there's tons of other stuff. So for 250 a month, you know, a dealership can train everybody in their service department and, you know, get results, learn pricing strategies, learn how to, how to be effective. So yeah, that's what's coming. I'm kind of excited about that. And I'm excited about giving my Jeep away. I'm going to trick it out. I'm going to drive it for a year and, you know, I'll put it in the marketing when I jack it up, I'm going to wrap it with vinyl. I'm going to do it like that Lambo orange, that like flat orange. I'm going to get some cool wheels. I might go to SEMA with it. We'll see. But um, yeah, you can win my Jeep, my Jeep truck. That's the contest, the service manager challenge, you versus you. And so all that will be up on our website, you know, in the, in the coming weeks, it's brand new. We just announced it this last weekend, but um, we're working on all that stuff to, to flip the website over, but it'll be fun. So yeah, any clients you have too, that you think would be a good, you know, a good fit for that. The thing with the, with the Jeep, man, is just, it's, it really helps when we did the $50,000 service manager challenge, it made managers that wouldn't take the leap of faith, take the leap of faith. And that's the idea with the contest is 
if there's some sort of carrot out there that you can commit yourself to, then you'll take the leap of faith and nothing bad ever happens when you take, you know, when you take action, even if it doesn't work perfectly, you're going to learn things. You're only going to get better. And so that's my, I'm, I'm spending all the money on the Jeep to give it away, to try to get more managers to take a leap of faith and fix their departments, get high fixed absorption, be the dominant, you know, dealership in their market. That's the idea. Right on, man. So we're going to put all this information in the show notes too. So make sure to check that out so you can get in touch with, uh, you know, get some more information on all of that. So <laughs> we went, we're, we're almost did an hour and you wanted to go 30 minutes. I know. See, I told you I talked. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I'm worried about Eric. When are you going to update me about Eric? I'll, I'll send you guys an email, let you know if he's, if he's in jail or not. <laughs> all right. So in one three or less, because we have yes. two minutes before the, the session stops. Um, the question I ask everybody that comes on the show is where do you see the automotive industry in the next five years and why? Um, it will be very, it will, manufacturers will go direct to consumer and service and parts will be the most important departments and fixed absorption will, will be critical. Right on. There it is. Chris, thank you so much, dude, for doing this. I really appreciate your time. This was great. Uh, I think there's a lot of good information here. It's going to be a, gr- a great a great episode to put down. So thank you. Thank you, sir. Yeah, man. I love what you're doing. Just keep giving back. It'll, it'll come around. Thanks for having me. And if there's anything we can do on our end, let me know. Right on, man. Thank you. That's all we have for today. And as usual, we'll talk later. You made it all the way to the end. Congratulations. Thank you so much for tuning in. We truly, truly appreciate it. If you like this episode and you think of somebody that can benefit from this information, please make sure to share it. Share this podcast so that they can take these insights back to the dealership and implement on their day to day. Thank you so much. And as usual, we'll talk later.